And I remember discussing with others uh, what they thought of that. And there were two opinions. One was that, you know, you should never support any group or organization that doesn't agree with your values. And the other one was, well, wait a minute, I'm not in charge of those values. And not only not only am I not going to change it by much by by moving to another store. Well, I'm just moving to another store I disagree with on something else. Welcome to the Resilient Faith at Work podcast, where we help you find and apply God's wisdom at work. I'm Ken Kennard, and I'm joined by Dr. Chip Roper and Sarah Evers. We're in the middle of our Dilemmas at Work series, where we respond to the recent research on the issues Christians are facing at work. Today, we address the problem that we should all see coming. It's what happens when our values at work don't align with those of our employing organization. And we should see it coming because we know that if we follow Jesus and adopt his values, that they will not necessarily align with the world in which we live. Uh, Jesus told us that in the world we would have trouble, and even when he prayed for his disciples, he talked about not taking them out of the world, but protecting them from the evil one. So what do we do when this happens? We recorded this conversation in June of 2022, just as summer was warming us all up and changing some of our daily habits. So is it hot everywhere where you guys are? Uh, because Phoebe isn't going to school now, it's summer's here, I haven't been checking the weather as regularly. And um, with, um, with me walking the dog every time the dog needs to go out, the way I gauge it is how hot and uncomfortable do I feel when I walk the dog. So this morning, the temperature was quite lovely. It was, it was a delight to walk the dog. And as the day goes on, it becomes more and more of a chore. And um, my need for her to be quick so I can get back in the house um, is goes out higher and higher. So sometimes I get nervous to look at the numbers. So let's talk about this. So that's interesting because then so you're more dialed into the environment because you have to walk the dog. Yes. Um, I get impatient with my dog. Like, could you hurry up? You know, and there's they 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 have to find the right spot, which seems very strange. And there's a difference between spot finding sniffing and recreational yes. sniffing. Yes. That is true. And I'm like, come on, Bailey, no, rec- no recreational sniffing. Daddy doesn't have time for recreational sniffing right now. Like, we've got to, you know? Yeah, I, I think I think you might underestimate this, Chip. Do you think it's maybe like the, you know how the ice uh, in Eskimo land has seven different kinds, you know, seven different names for ice? Yes. I wonder if dogs have like seven or ten different words for the kinds of sniffing that there are in the world. Well, if you say that, I think there's another one, which is, oh, I need to be over there sniffing, which is like yes. she pulls on the leash and we go like off in this direction. And I think it's a subset, though, of recreational sniffing. Uh, it's okay. the something really interesting is over here or somebody really interesting yeah. was over here. Yeah. And I just want the um, finding the spot to relieve myself <laughs> sniffing so that we can get on with, you know, what needs to happen. So it's really interesting. Yesterday, when I took Peggy out in the morning, we interrupted some deer who were grazing um, not too far from our home. Um, and to see them loping through uh, all the trees was a, not only was it beautiful, but it made me a little bit concerned that Peggy would be very interested in some deer scat, which I try very hard to avoid. Yes, that's because that's they roll in it, right? Uh, she hasn't, she sometimes, she hasn't quite rolled in it yet. She does think it's an interesting addition to her diet. Ew. Well, that's even oh. worse. It is. It is. And then she wants to lick your face. Right. And then I have to dig things out <laughs> of her mouth because she also likes to eat mulch, which then makes her sick. So, yeah, th- th- there are just some things about dog ownership that I didn't anticipate. And I love my dog. But there's some gross aspects to it. Indeed, it just just pulls us back to earth. Ken, do you just like open the door and let your dog go outside? You know, um, other members of the family do that. I generally have a more hands-on approach and take the dog with me and sort of, you know, because I find that sometimes like you, Chip, I can be a little impatient and I may have, maybe this is false uh, pride on my part, but I may have an influencing factor to get her to hurry up. That's what I tell myself. Interesting. Interesting. So Audrey thinks that Bailey knows that once she does her business, she's going to have to go back inside. So she does, I think this would be called delay sniffing. Um, By the way, we're going to publish the VOCA guide to the different kinds of dog sniffing 
uh, as a result of this amazing uh, <laughs> podcast launch conversation. Uh, but yeah, I, she thinks that there's like she knows, you know, and uh, yeah, it's just a, it's just a bizarre, and I just can't believe I spend this much time thinking about this topic. Yeah. Well, Peggy's going to charm school in August. Do you think they'll have some you know, like etiquette for sniffing? Well, I'm hoping that we will be able to curtail some of the challenges we have when we go out on the leash. So Ken has mentioned the the pulling of the leash. Uh, we get that quite a bit. Uh, so I'm hoping that this two week charm school will will really result in some um, more mannerly behavior. Well, this is not the Resilient Walking Your Dog podcast. This is Resilient Faith at Work. And uh, we're just warming up here today and connecting with each other as we love to do. And now we're gonna get into our topic. So uh, as you know, we've been focusing on dilemmas a lot in, uh, in this series. And we're gonna get to the fourth one today. And we call this dilemma misalignment. And I'm gonna define that a little bit, talk about some strategies that don't work and then uh, we'll dig into some solutions together and stopping all along the way to to kind of mine the collective wisdom of our coaching team. So that's our plan. So so basically this dilemma speaks to this, this question. What do you do when you're at odds with your company's values, strategic priorities, or practices? You're at odds, you disagree, you feel misaligned with, it could be the company values, it could be strategic priorities, like these are tactical decisions or it could be other practices and cultural kind of habits that just just feel like they just they either don't fit with you or you think or more more pointedly you actually think they're wrong and uh, we think this kind of spins out in some statements that might describe you know that we saw actually not might describe that that we saw in the research that we did like I don't support the political activism of the leadership in my company or the opposite I don't support the lack of political activism in the leadership of my company. Both are experiences of misalignment. Um, you know, my contribution and skills are not valued by the people in power here. And the, um, and the women that we've, we've worked with and surveyed had a more specific version of this. They feel like there's often a boys club uh, where they are shut out of the key decisions uh, or just, they're just, just automatically excluded from the same kind of influence as their male colleagues. And then a, another example is just that I believe the strategic direction of the company is wrong. Like it's the decisions of leaders about where we're going are not in the best interest of, of the key stakeholders in the business or the organization. So those are some examples, but this is this idea of misalignment. And um, it came up in our research in the fall, it came up in our research in the spring, and we wanna talk about it today in this episode. So, so what are some not so helpful strategies? And as we think about these, um, Here's a key point. There's some value in each of these strategies. It's just that they're incomplete and they often offer a sort of false hope or an oversimplification of dealing with misalignment. So uh, the first one is be the change. And it, this is an idea that actually is attributed to Gandhi who said, you know, be the change you want in the world. I, I think it actually probably goes back even to Jesus who was, you know, he advocated this idea that when a, a disciple is fully trained, they become like their teacher. It's like live by example, teach by example, that kind of thing. And this, this idea is, is, is suggested especially to mid-level leaders and managers and professionals and, and people in companies and organizations and says, you know, be the change that you want in your company or organization. Model this the way you want things to be done. And the promise that's often held out is that if you do that, you'll change your company or organization. And you know, we've seen this over and over again as consultants and coaches that it's very hard to change an organization from the middle. And so there may be kind of like a false hope that's attached to that one. So be the change is not, doesn't always work. The opposite strategy is to run for the hills. And it's this mindset that if something's difficult or you're not valued or it's, you know, I would say I might hesitate to say toxic. I don't mean abusive, but I really don't mean that. I just mean if something's really difficult and hard, you should get out of there as quickly as possible. And again, this is a nuancey thing. Sometimes you, sometimes you should get out of there and um, sometimes you shouldn't. Uh, a third strategy that's not so helpful is to compromise. And I have a friend that said one time, he was just talking about some sort of shady things. He, he felt like he had to go along with shady ethical things, you know, not quite truthful communications. But he just said, you know, churches, he literally said this, church is church, business is business. Different sets of rules. Um, 
And you know, this is tricky because we encourage people to have a learner mindset, we call it, to be curious, especially at the initial phases of dealing with something that's hard. We there's often we think that people can find win-win compromises and path, not even compromise is the right word, but path forward. But there's also times when compromise is absolutely inappropriate. And so this is not a helpful helpful strategy. And the last one is venting. And you go and find somebody who agrees with you about the misdirection of, of a company and, or the organization, and you complain to each other, and you have a you know you have a, a wine fest or a complain fest, and you just kind of pile on and, and talk about how terrible everything is. So we have these four strategies that we don't think are that helpful to this issue of misalignment: be the change, run for the hills, compromise, and venting. Ken and Sarah bring you guys here into this conversation and what do you think about uh, misalignment? What do you think about these not so helpful strategies? Yeah, well, listening to the not so helpful strategies reminded me of a client interaction I had where um, he was a mid-level person and he was not aligned with the strategy that was going on in the company. And so <clears throat> he decided that he was going to be the change uh, and that he was going to you know, make it happen. He also didn't feel like they fully um, allowed him to express the value that he could bring to the company. So he kind of took it on. Uh, and what he learned in the process was that he was not in the strategic meetings where the decisions were being made and he had very limited influence as a result. And so though he wanted to change the strategy and though he thought he could and he had good ideas, um, in the end, he just kept experiencing the conflict. Uh, and the, the organization didn't change and he ended up leaving the organization frustrated. Yeah, and it made me think of um, a client I'm working with who disagrees with the strategic direction that her organization is going in. Uh, she feels like there is a bottleneck in her organization that um, the, the, the priorities seem to shift um, on, a, on a whim. And so uh, I... I hear this. I mean, there are these real challenges out there that people are having at work, whether it is about um, politics or direction or the boys club. People are at odds with their company and it can make your work hours, which tend to be the better hours of your day, really miserable to experience. And as you talked about these uh, four different strategies, Chip, um, th there are elements of truth in there and yet they're not always helpful. It's not always simple to just vent about it. Um, I appreciate what you said about that turning into gossip. I certainly don't recommend that people vent at work when they're having some challenges or difficulties because that just turns into a rumor mill or gossip or um, or it can actually create enemies at work. Yeah, I was, I was working with a client this week and, um, and I was talking to them about a colleague they were dealing with and they were like, this colleague tends to throw our other colleagues under the bus and now I wonder what they say about me yeah you know and I've got another client who's an extrovert they need to process out loud every time they do that inside the ecosystem of their company it comes back to bite them you know because they talk a lot they're all over the place uh, it de decreases their reputation a lot of times they don't share the conclusion because they're just processing and so I, I think that's a really important I mean, it's a kind of broader point, but it's just that the idea that these things may sound okay, they're popular advice and popular, like venting is a habit, right? Now that happens everywhere, but um, it actually doesn't work. Not, not if you do it in an unsafe way. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I would say it's not all bad. I mean, I remember venting to my coach once about things that were going on at work, and it was I just really needed to talk to someone who was safe about these things. And I remember getting to the end of the venting and he said, OK, you've done that. Um, so what do you want to do about it? <laughs> and that, and you know, that kind of pivoted my energy to thinking about solutions instead of thinking about problems. And that was really helpful. And I don't know that it's someone inside the organization could have given me that shift. Well, and isn't that the difference between venting to a colleague uh, as opposed to venting to somebody who is going to help you move forward at work? Right? So when you work with a coach or when I listen to my clients who are venting, I listen to them, help them explore and understand it. But the goal is always moving them towards action. What's their next best step as a result? So, yeah, the um, venting with people who can help you move forward versus venting with people who will simply commiserate with you makes a difference. Yeah, it's a very, it'd be an exceptional 
I mean, I don't even know where this hat, the virtual water cooler. It would be an exceptional virtual water cooler where somebody actually said, let's move to the solution side. I mean, a bartender <laughs> will listen to you too, um, but they're not going to push you for that. You know, they're just going to ask you if you want another. So, like, the whole point is, like, you've got to, it, that's why these things don't work. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't fully work. They're not wise, especially if they're not uh, taken on with care. Big picture for solutions in this, in this episode, we want you to think about the book of Daniel in the Old Testament of the Bible. Because Daniel and his three companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they faced an incredible crucible of misalignment. Um, and there's, you know, there's some, there's some details that don't apply uh, to us in our work situations. So, you know, for instance, they were forced into exile. Their nation was captured. So they, you know, they could risk their lives and escape, uh, or they could go along, go with a kind of try and find a way to survive in this very uh, hostile. I, we would call it toxic and abusive environment. You know, that's it was really extreme. But they, the the point is that they did. The point is that they found a way to maintain their integrity and actually succeed, like from a, from a sort of outside perspective, succeed in wild ways um, in, in this kind of crucible of, of misalignment. So uh, if you want to get the most out of uh, where we're headed with this episode, uh, we suggest you go to Daniel, the book of Daniel, and you read uh, chapters one through six. Uh, it makes for great reading. It's, it's interesting, it's challenging, it's inspiring, um, and it's, it's kind of the backdrop for a lot of things that we want to share. So I'm going to talk about a few of the solutions and Ken and Sarah and I will bat them back and forth and then we'll come back to some more. So first, the first group. Uh, the first big idea is what we call exilic thinking. So the idea of being in exile. And exile is not like a happy idea in most cases. It's the, it's the idea that you've been sent to a place that you didn't want to go and where you're at some kind of demographic or racial or national disadvantage. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel and his three friends. They were Hebrew aristocratic youths who were sent to be part of the court of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And what we would say is that when you work at a company that is, um, and it's most, it's most public companies or general nonprofits in the United States, you're going to find that there is a sense that you're in a place of sort of cultural exile. And it may not be hostile, it's just that you're different. You have a different set of values, you answer to a different set of priorities, and you are not in the dominant chair. And it could be about moral things, it could be about priorities, it could be about work life, and how work life integration happens, it could be about honesty, integrity. It's You're almost always going to run into some area of, of misalignment. And um, so a couple of thoughts about that. Uh, when you're in an exilic environment, the first is you don't expect to win. You don't expect to win over the culture and get everybody to see your point of view all the time, especially on moral and spiritual issues. You just don't. Um, if that happens, that's like a bonus, but that's not your expectation. Your hope is to survive and to be faithful to, to God and what he's called you to do. So that's a very different kind of what success look like in exile kind of thing. And as John Tyson has pointed out, and Sarah, you may have some thoughts about him because he's your pastor. Uh, but John says we've just in Christianity in America we've just baptized a narrative of winning, and we think we're always if you're doing God's deal you're always going to win. And in exile it's not a it's not about winning. It's about it's maintaining your identity and your integrity. Uh, and if you get to make a huge contribution, great. So, Chip, are you saying that we should just set our goal at survival or just hold our breath until Jesus comes back? It, that seems like a pretty low bar as far as aspirations go. Or do you have something else in view here? Part of what I'm reacting to is this sort of, this I, this notion that I, I've, I've heard since I was a child, which is if we just kind of get it right as Christians, as the church, you know, we'll see our culture one to Jesus, we'll see our country one to Jesus, or one back, because sometimes the narrative, it's a return. And, um, and I've just seen this, this promise come in, in, in training and curriculum and various um, movements and campaigns, financial and otherwise, for, you know, I've been for five decades, like it just keeps coming. And so, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, I'm a little cynical. 
Um, but I also you know, I'm a student of the Bible. I'm a follower of Jesus, and and I I'm not sure that's an accurate expectation. I think there's this, this sense that we we overpromise, and a lot of it is it's a trust. If you get the right method, then you'll get the winning result. And I'm not sure that that's really biblical. That we're going to win over the culture. I mean, there's there are pockets of that in biblical history and in in Western history or the history of the world since times of Jesus was here. And there's a lot of times when Christians were marginalized and sometimes even killed. So it's it's a kind of a spotty historical record. And I don't think that's what the Bible is asking us to do. Jesus is saying, first of all, I want you to be true and faithful to me. Thinking about like John 17 where he says, God, don't take them out of the world, but keep them, keep them safe, keep them uh, holy or dedicated to me. And then he says, but he also says we're sent into the world the way he is sent in the world. So we do have a mission. And that mission will change lives. It may even change the whole trajectories of families and communities from time to time. Um, but I, I just get nervous when we kind of oversell uh, usually a method that's going to have this cultural result. So I think in an exilic mindset, you know, we're, we're people in exile, we're people on a mission in exile. It's risky, it's challenging, and ultimately we, it's going to be hard to tell at points, especially on the way, what the ultimate results are going to be. And so we are faithful, we maintain our confidence in God, we stand up for our principle, for the principles He's given us, we speak well of Him, and we trust Him with the results. Yeah, that's helpful. That, that clarifies. The other thing is that in exile, we have more, and this is, I think, another important thing, and I hope I can say it right, is that we have more of a responsibility to be faithful to God than we do to be faithful to the organization. Um, more of a sense that we need to figure out and do what God wants us to do rather than um, save or rescue the organization. Now, if you're the CEO, you have a certain global responsibility for the culture and the effectiveness of the organization that might be different, but most of us aren't the CEO. And most of us are in, uh, we have you know, defined slices of the pie in terms of our responsibility. And I, and I think sometimes there is a hyperactive sense of responsibility to try and save a whole organization or change a whole organization that like in exile, you don't, you don't think that way. You think I just need to, I need to be faithful in my little piece of the piece of the pie, piece of the piece of the thing. So that's a big, this is a big concept and we think it can give us a little bit of relief uh, and a little bit of perspective that's helpful. A couple more. Um, so the first is use an exilic mindset to get clarity. The second idea is to know what your red lines are, to know the things you really won't do. And um, in chapter one, Daniel says, I'm not gonna eat the king's food. The king's food was used in ritual idol worship and he didn't, want to, he didn't feel like in good conscience he could participate in that. So he said no. Uh, in chapter three, uh, the king had built a statue of himself and said everybody needs to bow down and, to me and worship me as God. You've probably had a boss like that once or twice, but that, so you know what it's like. But anyway, that's what he said, uh, the king said, and these guys said, no, we won't do that. We respect you, king, we live forever, but we are not gonna bow down to the statue because we only bow to God. And so these guys had very clear red lines. But what's interesting about the red lines is they drew the red line when they were being specifically asked to do something that violated their conscience. They did not draw a red line when the empire did something that violated their they didn't feel responsible for the empire. They were responsible for themselves. And I think there's a sense of clarity there in terms of boundaries that I don't always see in some of the debate about and the angst we have about misalignment. Third idea is to live your dependence on God. You know, they, they prayed a lot, which is how they sort of operationalized their dependence on God. They asked each other to pray. They prayed for each other. They were in community together, depending on God to somehow get them through the exile, it, this exile, exilic environment. It wasn't easy. It, it wasn't uh, clear-cut, it wasn't a slam dunk. Um, they were afraid, they were concerned, they were overwhelmed, and they expressed this, this, this dependence in prayer. And I, I, um, I was with a group of CEOs one time and we were talking about you know, li living your leadership as a Christian, and um, they just said, this is hard, and this, this some of this can make my company vulnerable. I might not be as profitable as other companies who don't have the same web of constraints that they're thinking through. And it's kind of like, yeah, we're going to have to really, you have to live your faith out in your work at a very core, core 
level of I just have to trust God to somehow get me through this uh, when you're in an intense exilic environment. And the last thing I want to say here before Ken and Sarah chime in is a very, very tactical piece of advice. And it's the divide and conquer uh, strategy. And, um, you know, with rage quitting and too many movies about somebody storming into the boardroom and making some amazing statement that changes the whole world, we've, we've, we've developed a very unhealthy fantasy life about um, bullying our company into changing or our organization to changing. It doesn't work. When you run into a full conference room of people that think differently than you, uh, you, you leave a martyr. You know, you just, that's, that's what happens. You, you're not going to be able to influence them. The way you influence people is one-on-one. And um, you get with them, you understand them, you um, find ways to, to, to figure out what's really driving them and, help, and, and deliver solutions to them if you can. And in chapter one, I told you, in Daniel chapter one, Daniel says, I'm not gonna eat the king's food. Well, this presented a dilemma for the guy that was his supervisor because the guy who was his supervisor was supposed to feed all these trainees in Babylon and make them look you know, healthy and happy. And so Daniel pulls him aside one-on-one, and it says in the text that he uses real tact. He's like, he understands his problem. He proposes a pilot program, a pilot test, you know, a test of, of a different kind of diet. All you vegetarians will really love it, so you want to read Daniel chapter 1. And, um, but it's just this one-on-one idea. And Daniel had some very interesting one-on-one interactions with King Nebuchadnezzar along the way as you look at the story. And this whole idea of frontal assault on a crowd that doesn't share your values, it's, it's a fantasy, it doesn't work. So part of exile is some of these bigger ideas about you know, prayer and um, knowing what your red lines are and those types of things. And part of it is just being tactful and trying to build connections and relationships with professional trust with people on a one-on-one basis as you navigate your company. So Ken and Sarah, a lot there. Um, let's... Uh, Let's go into exile and let's talk about some of these strategies for misalignment. What do you think? Well, as you talked about those first two strategies, using exilic thinking and knowing your red lines, immediately I thought of a client uh, that I'm working with. She um, is working really hard to honor that balance between doing what's best for her colleagues and the people who report to her and doing what's best for the organization. And she feels like she is working at her company uh, for such a time as this, it's almost like her Esther moment to bring in another another Old Testament hero. Um, but she feels like her job is to hold the organization to doing what's best for the people so that the people who report to her don't get crushed by the organization. And so um, I recognize themes from both of your points with the exilic thinking and the red lines. Um, she won't enact things that hurt the people <laughs> who report to her. And so she's constantly pushing back um, with her her with her direct reports and with the C-suite to make sure that the decisions that they're making are in the best interest of the organization and the people. Yeah, and I think that you, you what you brought to mind for me is that you don't even have to be inside the organization to be dealing with some of these red lines. It, it brought to mind for me um, a conservative Christian who had very strong views about this abortion debate that our um, com- that our country's gone through. And when one of the um, stores nearby took a position on that that he disagreed with, he felt like that was a red line for him and he wouldn't support that store. And I remember discussing with others uh, what they thought of that. And there were two opinions. One was that, you know, you should never support any group or organization that doesn't agree with your values. And the other one was, well, wait a minute. I'm not in charge of those values. And not only not only am I not going to change it by much by by moving to another store. Well, I'm just moving to another store I disagree with on something else. I mean, what where is this really leading? Can you ever even find an organization? I, I sometimes can't even find members of my own family that agree with me on <laughs> some of the values I have. So um, anyway, so so that that distinction, I think that you're making chip between what am I personally responsible for, especially in an organization or environment where I don't have a lot of control or say or authority and what those values are and how they get implemented versus what is my responsibility? What is my authority? What what can God hold me accountable for? Yeah, and this is why, so the term wisdom implies that there's not a clear-cut answer, that there's there's some, there's some, I'm thinking of the word fungibility, I don't know if that's a good word, but just like there's some flex, there's some give, there's some space, you know, where we can, like, our conscience 
careful thought and prayer and counsel, but are all required, but it's not a clear cut thing. You know, I, cause I've thought of what you said, you know, that example that you gave, it's like, well, you can always find something that you disagree with and just about every, and including Christian organizations, let's just be honest. Like they're not squeaky clean. Like we see, in fact, sometimes they're completely broken and awful and toxic and damaging. Not all the, not usually, but that's happened. So it's not like, it's not like we Christians have the corner on the market of, life-giving, flourishing organization consistently. Like, we're not. So what do you do with that? And, you know, I think that you have to say you could go crazy with, like, I'm never going to do anything with any organization, entity, or person who's doing something that violates my conscience. Like, you probably need to sign up for the colonization of the moon or something like that with nobody else. It's just robots. But, like, you just it's just going to be really hard. But... You still have to honor your conscience. We're not supposed to violate our conscience. Anything that we do out of doubt, we shouldn't do. Like, if there's doubt, you shouldn't do it. I mean, that's a, it's another part of wisdom. But uh, it's really interesting to think, back to Daniel and his friends, I mean, the Empire of Babylon had to be an awful place. I mean, I'm sure the king just executed whoever he wanted. He had a harem, I'm, you know, and I'm sure that was all kinds of, all kinds of crazy. And, um, and he wasn't a nice guy. <laughs> you know, like, he, he was terrible. And... Um, they were the administers of his kingdom. Like they were making it run better. Uh, and that was their calling. And it's just, you know, so where to, there's, I think maybe, and we really don't know because we don't know what was inside their hearts, but maybe I, wa- I would just wonder if they had a capacity to deal with tension that's, strong, that's stronger than ours. You know, we, we just want a tweetable phrase that solves everything. What do you guys think of that? Oh, I, I got both hands in the air and I'm saying amen to that. I think... That's unfortunately, I think that's what happened with our attention spans. Uh, we're looking for the tweetable moment or the social media slogan. Uh, we want just the sound bite that goes along with it, which is why I really appreciated the way you talked about that fourth strategy of divide and conquer, that we have so many of these fantasies from film and fiction um, of that life-changing speech or that moment-altering speech at the boardroom or the, or the flipping of the table because we're outraged by something. Uh, but that's not the way real change happens. Um, I really appreciate the way you talked through that um, the divide and conquer, it's the, it's the one-on-one, it's this, it's this consistent um, conversation, it's the um, persisting in standing up for what is true and not necessarily making a big scene uh, and drawing all that attention to yourself um, but again, those one-on-one conversations that make a difference. Yeah, and, and talk about non-tweetable. Here's something you probably, probably wouldn't work on Twitter, but you know, consider the context of what was going on in this horrible leadership, horrible culture situation that you mentioned, Chip, in Babylon. I mean, if you back up a little bit, you zoom out, you realize, wait, why are they in Babylon anyway? You know, God is chastening them mm. for their d- systematic disobedience of the covenant that they entered into with him. This is not like, you know, God just on a whim thought, oh, this will this will buff you up a little bit. You'll get stronger with this little challenge, you know. So um, I I think that's part of it, too, is that, you know, these people are being disciplined. So there's they're sinners, too, if we can use the old term, you know, like the biblical term They're They're broken. The the Jews are broken and the Babylonians are broken. And and there's a bit of a that's so that's a very interesting because I don't feel I don't hear like. I don't hear a lot of that, you know. I, I feel like, uh, you know, passionate Christians uh, who are like going and attacking things they disagree with in the culture. You don't hear a lot of "I'm broken too." You don't hear a lot of humility. Uh, yeah, and and we hear this narrative. I mean, we hear with our clients like, "I've got to get out of my secular job so I can work in a Christian environment." Like that's you know, like we hear that narrative and. You know, we believe that some people are called to do that. So we're not saying it's never the case, but there seems to be some of this sort of, I don't know, more of that sort of fantasy thinking about that's going to fix everything and it's all going to be good and maybe not so much. Yeah, well, that and that ties into the whole idea of the grass is greener elsewhere, right? If I just escape this and then I can only drink milk from a Christian cow and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be Christian milk. <laughs> Christian milk from a Christian cow. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um one of my friends points out that Christian is a terrible adjective. Mm. Somebody likes to say, like, if you're getting brain surgery, you don't really care if they're Christian or not. You just want to know they're good. 
And that leads us to our next pre our next kind of point on wisdom, which is excellence. And um, Daniel and his three friends were always commended for their excellence. And in chapter one, at the end of chapter one, it says they were ten times better than their peers. Now all you all you finance folks out there, you love any kind of multiple ten x. That's pretty good. And these guys were ten times wiser, more articulate, more prepared than their peers. Like they were top of the class. They really knew the business of, a, of running Babylon. And it's, that's pretty impressive. And we see this over and over again that kind of flows throughout the story. And uh, in Daniel chapter 6, which is the famous Daniel in the lion's den chapter, Daniel has some enemies, some political enemies. Maybe that should be on our list. Expect that kind of thing in, in exile. But anyway, he has some enemies. And when it, it says that when it, when it came to Daniel's administration of government and affairs and his, his, his integrity, they could find absolutely no grounds for accusing him. He was just excellent at what he did, completely trustworthy, uh, a true professional uh, in every sense of the word at what he did. So they, in order to accuse him of something, they had to find some kind of a, a, a religious accusation to use against him and trap him. But this idea of excellence is huge uh, and qualities Usually, quality speaks and people appreciate it, and um, there's just no replacement for it. It sometimes I feel like you know people sometimes they think, well, if I'm misaligned with this company, then I'm not going to give them my best effort. Uh, you know, if I don't agree, I'm not. I'm just going to kind of phone it in. And that's not what these guys did, and it opened up opportunities of influence and opportunity, and, and it opened up opportunities of influence for them that just don't come when we're when we when we do half-baked work. Uh, another, another strategy or another way to cope with misaligned environment is to speak well of God. And this is a risky one. Uh, some of you feel like, boy, if I, people, I don't want to be a public Christian in any way. Uh, I'll, get, I'll be penalized for that. I'll suffer in my career for that. And you have a lot of visions of what, a, what you don't want to be. <laughs> like you, you know, I live in New York City. You don't want to be the subway preacher. Uh, don't worry, we don't want you to be the subway preacher either, uh, unless you've got some very specific instructions from God on that. So we could talk about that all the flying. But you know, we, we think about like we don't want to be this caricature. We don't want to be the we don't want to be the public conscience who's always telling people you know don't cuss around me or whatever. Like we just don't want to be that person. Uh, and so we don't know what to do. So we do nothing. And what's really interesting about Daniel and his his friends is that whenever they could. They spoke well of God. They gave God credit for an insight, for the way things went. They, they talked about praying. They talked about, we've gotten this insight from God. They talked about praying. And um, how, just it's creatively, winsomely, subtly, how can you speak well of God in your environment and show that he really is the person uh, that you're trusting in? Uh, prayer seems to be a way that a lot of people, a lot of our, our friends and colleagues have, have found to do that. They... They talk about praying. They're praying people. They offer to pray for their colleagues. Um, most of the time, they get warm. Sure, I'd love you to. I'd be happy. I'd be grateful for you to pray for me, kind of thing. Um, but that seems to be kind of a way to do it. But something to think about, like how do we? You know, these guys were in this environment where there's all these gods, and there was an assumption because the Babylonians had conquered the Jews that the Babylonians' gods were stronger. And then even in that environment, they're saying, hey. God helped me with this. God delivered, showed me this. God is who I depend on. And we're going to close with a very cheery one. Kind of, I mean, we had a, a pre-warm-up, warm-up discussion that kind of relates to this in some ways. But this one is, be willing to die. Dun-dun-dun. Cue the music team. But what do we mean by that? Well, there's this idea that there was an inherent risk in their faithfulness to God in this environment. And... For them, it literally was life and death. And so, and just let's just talk about the story first. In Daniel chapter 3, this is the fiery furnace story. Many of you heard it probably in Sunday school when you were kids. Sadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They refused to bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And he throws them into the fiery furnace. And you know, before he does, they have the speech where they say, You live forever, king, but we just can't. You know, we believe in this God in heaven. We just can't do this. And uh, they said, and they even said, "Well, 
Our guy can save us from the furnace, but even if he doesn't, like they really didn't know what was going to happen, which we all hate because there's an ins- this is risk, real risk, real uncertainty, and they just walked right into it, and they were willing to die. And in Daniel chapter six, that's the Daniel in the lion's den story, and so there's this edict said that anybody that prays is good to anybody other than the king. That's a familiar theme in Daniel: worship the king or die. And that's what this was. And they, Daniel still prayed to God with his windows open. People saw him and that he was, he was thrown into the lion's den to be executed. So they were kind of risking everything uh, in their faithfulness. Remember, success in exile is being faithful. And it's, it's, it's surviving faithfully through that crucible. And that's what they did. And, you know, very few, if any of us, will ever physically die for our faith. We won't face that choice. I don't think most of us won't. Um, if any of us. But when we talk about work, we kind of have the same reaction, like, I could lose my job. How many times have you heard that said that way? I could lose my job. And it seems like it's death to us. And um, and sometimes we really just need to put it put it all on the line and, and, and trust that God's going to take care of us one way or another, exactly like they did. And, you know, sometimes... Um, we have to be faithful to something. We have a red line. We won't cross it. Um, you know, and I can think of some friends that definitely were pushed out of majorly great jobs, majorly high-earning positions, because, because they're public about their faith and the faith causes that they invested in. Um, so that's real. It happens. And other, you know, but so you let the company decide. You don't do anything. You just stay, don't cross your red line, stay faithful, let somebody else do that. But there's other times when it's almost like, um, we need to self-select and have a career death in the sense that we need to move on, and you know we need to have the we need to have the kind of faith that God's going to provide for us, and that there really is something better. And that's it's tricky because we we really get nervous about people who uh, impulse quit. We really get nervous about that. Uh, we've seen that not end well too many times. But on the other hand, sometimes you need to leave. Uh, sometimes you need to leave because there's a better company out there. Um, and sometimes you need to leave and start your own thing and that's real like that's true and sometimes that's the best thing and the only thing keeping you there it's not the sense of calling that God wants me here it's not the sense of you know I'm, I'm growing in my character and I'm adding value it's just that I can't do everything I want here it's you're only staying there because you're afraid of moving on and and there's a lack of faith to move on so so being willing to die quote-unquote in quotes die not real die uh, but just being willing to, to have a career death uh, to get to something better, whether it's spiritually or vocationally or both. That's part of it, too. So we have these, these three more, guys. Be excellent, speak well of God, and the cheery one, be willing to die. What do you think? Or be willing to die to reputation. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> if we can add that on, just to clarify. Yeah. yeah. An opportunity sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think of, of somebody that I really respected, who I saw this in his career. He... Uh, wasn't promoted because he had been vocal about his faith. And, um, and that was, you know, a couple decades ago that this happened. Uh, but he pinpoints that when he retired, he pinpointed it back to the fact that he didn't get promoted as high as he thought he would because he was vocal about his faith and his boss didn't like that. Um, and so there was this willingness to die to reputation because he knew what he needed to do that was right in the eyes of the Lord. Die to opportunity, die to promotion, die to self. And you were talking, we were talking before uh, we went on air today about this idea that sometimes part of that dying is, it's almost like ambition, it's image, like you may need to move somewhere else because it's a better opportunity, better cultural fit, but you might have to take a title cut or a slash pay cut. And there's a little bit of maybe, well, I don't know, how would you call, what do you call that? Like a Well, the client dying? I'm working with. Yeah, the client I'm working with right now is really struggling with that because the opportunity he has in front of him is 20k less, and it's a it's a it's a step down from where he is now. So there is this idea of of dying to who he thinks he should be, or where the expectation of where he ought to be in his uh, career right now, um, and even thinking through um, you know what what is the best fit for him long term as he weighs out his family responsibility. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to consider. And, and sometimes taking the step back is actually the better option for you. Yeah, I like what you said about speaking well of God, uh, Chip. I was, my conscience was pricked a little bit on that one because you say finding ways to winsomely and casually send credit 
God's way. I was thinking of a time a few weeks ago when I was up against a challenge at work that I really didn't feel like I was skilled enough to handle. I wasn't sure how it was going to go. And I prayed and asked God to, you know, work in this situation. Um, and after it turned out so well, someone came back to me and said, hey, I heard you had this great success. That's really awesome. How'd you do that? And my mind immediately went to like strategy. Yeah, there must have been some tactic I had. There must have been some strat. Maybe I read a book. I started thinking about like, well, you know, and <laughs> and only later did I realize, oh, shoot, what a missed opportunity. Like that was an answer to prayer. I didn't really know how to do it. And God deserves the credit for that, not me. Um, and that would have been a great opportunity to subtly and winsomely and appropriately give God credit for acting in the world to make good happen when I'm kind of at the end of the good yeah. that I think I can deliver. And I don't, I don't know how you guys feel, but I feel like, like when we're with a non-faith-based client, I, I sometimes feel this, it's internal pressure to highlight even more, like, like just general credentials and uh, just yuck it up with everybody else and do everything I can to kind of just fit in. And, um, and I think that, I don't know, sometimes, I, again, it's like one of these things, like where's that line? But it's, it's, it feels like it's some point going away from the, the idea of how do I speak well of God? I want them to think well of me. Right. Uh, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. Well, I, I worked with somebody who was always um, looking for those divine moments, those God moments. Where were the divine connections? The email responses that came back swiftly so he could move forward with his work. And so his response was often, I just prayed about that when somebody would, would, re would come to him with information that he needed. I just prayed for that. Thank you for getting to me. And that was his way of constantly keeping... God in the conversation at work. Um, and it was very easy and non-threatening for him to use prayer as his, as his way of speaking well of God and, and giving God credit. Yeah, it's really tricky, you know. How do, what's it mean to be a public Christian? Um, not to be a Pharisee who's judging all your colleagues, like that's wrong and it doesn't work. Right? So it's, there's too, too many issues with that. But then to be, the opposite is to be silent, you know, yeah. and that's, that's no good either. And I, I, I think that speaking well of God and giving God credit and telling people that you're praying is more effective when you have excellent work. When you, but when you do your work half-heartedly, then your talking about God can either seem Pollyanna or out of touch or um, hypocritical. Yeah, like an so, excuse. Yeah, yeah. So I think there, there really is a um, when we represent God as Christ's ambassadors, there is a call to excellence, to, to work um, unto God, not as unto man. So there, there is this, I think, call for us to level up our game. Yeah, that's good. Like in Peter, Peter talks, of, I think it's first Peter, he talks about, like if you suffer for doing bad things, like get over it. Like, like you deserve it. Don't say that you're suffering because you're a Christian when you just, you know, and I guess in his case, he was just thinking more like, you know, you stole something, you lied, or that kind of like, you know, you misbehaved civically or something like that. But the same applies to the workplace, right? Like, don't say I'm being persecuted as a Christian when you just, you know, you just did some really lousy work. You know, you missed a deadline, you misrepresented it, you phoned, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, that's a great point. And, I, you know, we believe all of us are made by God to be excellent at something. You know, like that we have that capacity. And... Um, and I think we get freed up from who am I doing? Like, I'm just doing this for me or I'm just doing this to make a living, but I'm doing it because this is who I was made, how I'm made, and I'm doing it ultimately for God. And I mean, that's what those, these guys had to be, have some of that going on because like there was nothing redemptive about what Babylon stood for, you know, as a enterprise. I mean, it was all downside morally and spiritually. Um, well, good. This is, I mean, this is a tough topic. We've tried to just kind of dive into some of these pieces of it in terms of what is the challenge, what doesn't work, what could work. Let's just let's, let's wrap up with just some final thoughts from each of you guys about, um, you know, maybe it's something that's helped you kind of navigate this in your life or, um, or something that you've seen in a client or a friend. I, I, I always appreciate, um, when, when we can get help with tricky situations. And this is one of those tricky situations. I don't think it's simple. I don't think there are easy answers. And I think that's where story comes in. You know, um, 
the story of Daniel and his friends show us uh, an example uh, of one way of navigating a situation that's not ours. And it requires us to dig in and say, okay, well, what, what are the principles then that do apply to what I'm going through? And um, that's a little bit more work than just getting a quick and easy tweet or um, easy solution, you know, the platitudes. And, and as I look at the things that we said that don't work, they're all pretty simple. <laughs> they're all, they seem a little easy. You yeah. know, it's almost like, oh, avoid the conflict or, you know, um, or even too hard, you know, change the entire organization yourself. <laughs> but, yeah. but the truth is in that messy middle. And I think that's where we um, appreciate that God's presence is with us and that we walk with God. We don't just, um, you know, figure out a platitude and run with it. It's, it's, the, it's the difficulty of being in that mess, messiness, but also that's where wisdom is. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, Ken, that's that's real good. I, when you started talking about the messy middle, and it seemed to me that those those um, helpful approaches that really aren't helpful, you know, those those ways that Google might tell you to deal with situations at work, they seem to be on the extremes, right? Be the change, change the world, or get out of there, um, and compromise, and just do it anyway, or blow off steam and vent to the wrong people. And, um, you know, I've got a, I've got a mentor who used to always say we only hit balance when we swing from one extreme to the other. Um, and so I think the, the call for us as believers is to not get swept up in the swing um, to the extremes, um, but to but to stick on the straight and narrow, to 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 stay close to God, to listen to his voice whispering in our ear. This is the way walk in it and to look for our Daniel moment, to look for our Esther moment when we do excellent work consistently um, and give honor and credit to God and live our lives authentically, appropriately, um, winsomely and warmly. No, those are, that's really good. I, I feel like this is, this is a, we're at a cultural moment, at least in the United States, where we just, the world needs more people who can live in this tension. You know, there's a whole sort of, there's a whole sort of movement and an exodus from the sort of general marketplace to start Christian companies and have Christian cultures and embed them from the ground up. And that's great. I mean, if people are called to do that, you know, not everybody went to Babylon. You know, some people stayed back in Jerusalem. That's fine. But most of us are actually not going to work in an environment like that. And we need people who can still maintain the sense of center, the sense of core, uh, that they're really ultimately it comes down to, I'm not guaranteeing my future. I'm actually trusting God for it, like at a real practical, granular day-to-day -day level. And from that kind of base of spiritual security, I can, I can, I can risk, um, you know, speaking well of God. I can, I can be interested in people who think very differently and behave very differently than me. I can be curious about them instead of just judging them right out of the gate. And um, when I have to, to hold a line, a red line, I can do it and trust that some, one way or another, he's actually going to take care of me. And I'm going to be in the ultimate sense, I'm going to be okay and even better off for having held that standard, even though it's scary and I don't know how it's going to turn out. So not, not light fair on this episode, not easy stuff, not at all, but really, really important, especially for all of us who work out in kind of the normal world, which is, is really most. Uh, so we appreciate you listening. Uh, resilient faith at work. This is that's that's that's, a, that's at the heart of what we've talked about today, and uh, we'd love to walk with you personally in a direct way as as coaches and trainers. If we could help you think through your strategy uh, for dealing with the misalignments in your work environment. Thanks. So this conversation was recorded in front of a live virtual audience, and you can be a part of that audience. Register to join us and shape the conversation with your questions. Sign up for the next live webinar at vocacenter.org webinar. And we'll see you next time on the VOCA podcast, where we help you build resilient faith at work.